You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, there should be one in the pew near you, or maybe this one's yours. If that looks familiar, uh, it was uh, found here this morning, but it's actually not mine. I need to get my Bible. So if you're missing a Bible, you can come and grab that one from me later. Um, but turn with me to Psalm 23, just a beloved, well-known passage of Scripture, and for good reason. Um, We looked last week at the first half of the psalm, verses 1 to 3, and and just a, a phenomenal picture of the Lord. David answering the question, who is the Lord? And, and we are so often prone to answer that question in, in technical terms, in theological terms. This is who God is, and we want to be right about who God is, and there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But as we read David's answer, we're reminded how ultimately insufficient that is. It's not enough just to know who God is. David's answer um, isn't given in technical terms. It's given in deeply relational, personal terms. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He cares for me. He says, my shepherd feeds me. My shepherd gives me rest. My shepherd restores my soul. My shepherd leads me in righteousness. And so this beautiful picture of this relationship that David has with the Lord um, fits so well with what we saw at the start of the summer in Psalm 1 and, and the, the theme of the book of Psalms that those who, who trust the Lord, who walk with him, will be blessed. What richer blessing can there be than, than to personally know the Lord himself, to have his care over our lives That is what it means to be truly blessed. And the the Lord invites us to know him in that personal, meaningful way. There's so many um, who've grown up in the church or been around the church or know about God, but, but don't truly know him. Don't have that ongoing personal relationship with him. So that's what we looked at in verses 1 to 3. But as we move this morning into the second half, into verses 4 to 6, we find ourselves, I think, pressed a little bit, maybe. What does it mean to know him? What is this blessing that he offers? And and what does that really look like in real life? Because there are many who, who know the Lord. He is their shepherd. But their experience appears to be anything but green pastures and still waters. They know him, they love him, they trust him, and life is hard. Try as they may, just financial ends will not meet. Your spouse leaves you. A child rebels and breaks all communication. Depression creeps in and leaves you paralyzed. Disease or cancer drops its wrecking ball into the middle of your life. Or the great enemy, death itself, looms 
large on the horizon. What then? Those are all things that have happened in this body. How, how do we then say the Lord is my shepherd? What does that mean in the midst of the darkness? And David continues to answer this question, who is the Lord? He turns in, in verse 4 to knowing the shepherd even, and, and I would argue especially in times of darkness. In his words, in the valley of the shadow of death. Let's take a minute. Let me just read this psalm in its entirety, and then we'll look closer at verses 4 to 6. Follow along with me. Um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you for this blessed psalm, for these rich promises. And Lord, help us this morning. Lord, you know our hearts. You know that we are often um, slow and, and distracted or, or frustrated. God, give us eyes to see your truth. Give us hearts that are, that are soft before your word, that are willing to be shaped and molded and corrected. And God, you know better than anyone my insufficiency and my weakness and my need for your Holy Spirit this morning. God, would you speak through me? Lord, would you open my mouth um, to speak your truth, that your word um, would go forward, that our hearts would be connected um, to the truth that you have given, Lord, that you might be uh, at work, that we might know you more as our shepherd, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to verse 4, the first thing we see um, is my shepherd is with me. My shepherd is with me. Um, this verse is often used in the face of death itself. It's read to those who are uh, seemingly on their deathbed or mourning at a funeral. And that's certainly appropriate, but, but literal death here isn't necessarily the meaning. Um, the word translated the shadow of death, uh, it could well be translated as the NIV does, the, the darkest valley or the deepest darkness. Um, it has that sense of foreboding, of, of fear, of dread. Um, the imagery of, of the shadow of death kind of helps us get there, um, but it's more than just death. It's broader than that. Far-reaching, it includes any sense of, of threat, of, of pain, of hardship, of harm and, and evil. And, and I think as we read about the valley of the shadow of death, uh, every one of us can look back and say, I, I remember a valley. I know times of hardship, times of, of shadow and darkness, and, and maybe that's you right now. He uses the imagery of the valley. In Alberta, we're used to these nice 
broad, open valleys, these beautiful green spaces. Um, Israel's landscape is a little different. I think he has in mind a steep, narrow valley. In the plains or on the mountaintop, you can, you can see what's coming from all around you. You can prepare yourself for what's coming. You can, you can move freely. But, but in the narrow valley, you're blind. You're vulnerable. You can't see danger that might be coming over the top or around the corner. You're confined. You're restricted. You, you can't easily escape. You're easily trapped and cornered. And of course, as the sun sets in the mountains, as we know, uh, it just seems to go so quickly from bright sunshine to the sun behind that mountain peak, and, and it begins to be dark. And if you're on the west side of that valley as the sun sets, it might even still be bright and sunny over on the other side, but you're in the shadow already, the shadow of the valley, and it's dim and cold. There appears to be a stark transition here between verse 3 and verse 4. The psalm opens so, so sweet, so restful, full of, of promises, of, of blessing. It, it feels like this walk down the garden path. The Lord is my shepherd. This is great. And then suddenly verse 4 just plunges into the darkness. Like where did this come from? And yet I think we have to see this is not a hard transition. This is not a stark break here. Those paths of righteousness from verse 3 the right paths that our loving shepherd leads us down are very often the path that leads right through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't lose sight of that. So often it goes this way. Uh, you have some decision to make and you pray about it. Lord, lead me. God, show me your will. Help me to do the, the right thing. Lead me in the right path. And, and you finally make the decision and you head down that road and you think, all right, the Lord is leading me. This is great. And, and, and it turns out badly. I mean, you find yourself just in a mess. And, and, and you're frustrated and you're hurt. You're discouraged, even suffering. And you just want to throw up your hands and say, Lord, what happened? How did we get here? Did I miss something? Were you, were you hiding it from me? Surely this isn't your will. This can't be your plan. I've, I've messed it up. I, I've, I've ruined the will of God for my life. Now I did the wrong thing and now I'm stuck here and it's awful. Many people even get angry at God. God, why did you let this happen? I asked for you to lead me. I trusted you. I listened to you. I moved forward in faith. And look what you did. Look where you've brought me. It's easy to think that the Lord's blessing, the Lord's leading, would only ever produce smooth paths and sunshine. But David doesn't work under that assumption. He sees the Lord as his shepherd who watches out for him, who's caring for him, who is carefully leading him. And he still fully expects that there will be times when the paths of righteousness, the leading of the good shepherd will take him through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't fall prey to, to thinking that, that hardship and trials means that you've somehow missed a step. That you've missed God's will or that God's not leading you anymore or that you've kind of broken out of where he was directing you. Or even that the, the difficult path is in any way a path of lesser blessing and kindness from the Lord. 
Even in the midst of the storm, even in that, that dark shadow of gloom, David says, I, I have no fear. I will not fear. And he says, I fear no evil. Now, the, the Hebrew word there um, is not quite as specific as the English word evil uh, tends to be. Um, we use the word evil as kind of this moral term. Evil is the, the actions of a, of a malicious person. Um, in the Hebrew, the word's ra'ah, and it's a much more general term. It's just bad. Anything not good. And David is saying, I will fear nothing bad. Nothing ultimately bad is going to happen to me. But how can he say that? Has nothing bad happened to him before? What is this valley of the shadow of death if it's not bad? But he speaks with confidence. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear and he tells us why. The first answer is, for you are with me. My shepherd is with me. And that's enough. A sheep that has its shepherd by its side, like a, like a child in the arms of his father, has no fear. No matter what comes, if you're there, I am not scared. I'm at peace. If you say this is okay, then it's okay. It's Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Trust him. Set your mind on him. Know that your shepherd is with you even through the valley. Do you have that kind of confidence in the Lord? Do you know him as your shepherd who is, who is with you? Not only in the bright, sunny paths, but just as much in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, I don't mean this in any way as a condemnation. We all struggle and wrestle with, with fear and doubt and weakness and insecurity. But we need to understand the, the level of our fear, the level of our anxiety is directly related to the level of our doubt. Right? If, if we had perfect faith, you could truly see and fully believe who the Lord is and that he is with us, what would we fear? What, what would concern us? What would give us anxiety? Nothing. There would be no fear. No matter the circumstance, we would have perfect peace. If we really believed in the, the wisdom and the goodness of God, if we truly trusted his plan, if our minds were stayed on him, Nothing can shake that. That peace that passes all understanding would be ours. Our anxiety, our fear, our doubts, they're, they're produced by our human weakness and, frankly, our sinfulness. If only we knew what it meant to say with confidence, my shepherd is with me. And more than just knowing that the Lord is with him, David sees the Lord and, and what he's doing there. Secondly, we see um, my shepherd protects me. David is comforted by these twin truths. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The, the rod was the shepherd's weapon. A bit like a, a billy club that a, a police would carry. It, it would have hung from the, the waist belt of the shepherd. And, and if a lion or a bear or robbers would threaten the sheep, um, the rod comes out. He would drive them away. 
A good shepherd protects his sheep. If you know this shepherd as your shepherd, you need to know with confidence that he will protect you. He will protect his sheep. Now, that protection maybe isn't always what we would expect it to be, what we might hope it to be. How often have we as parents let our children struggle with something that would be so easy for us just to step in and fix, but we know it's, it's good for them to wrestle through or we've withheld them from them something that, that they believe would be for their, their, their good. They desperately want, but we as a father and mother know better and we're going to hold that back. How much more so is the Lord's care for us often beyond what we would expect, different from what we might understand? And we're, we're familiar with Isaiah 55. The Lord says, my, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Um, We know those words, and yet how quickly when something seems to go sideways, that just kind of, it's gone. Lord, that's not what I wanted. This isn't the plan. This doesn't make sense. This isn't good. Don't stop and consider maybe the Lord's plan is different from mine. Maybe it's not what I would have planned. His right paths are good and gracious and kind and often hard, often difficult, but he always protects us. Paul understood this. Look at the the confidence that he has in in Romans 8, 35 to 39. It's too long to put up on the screen. Romans 8, 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all day long we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he saying? He's saying, God, you're with me, and you protect me. Nothing bad will happen to me. And and look at the apparent contradiction here. Even if I face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, even if I die, nothing bad will happen to me. What? What, Paul? What do you mean? How do those go together? Oh, because the Lord is doing something. The Lord is working through even these things, even those hardships and trials and pain and suffering, real as they may be, don't separate me from the love of God. He's working in and through that, working all things for our good. Do you trust the Lord in the darkness? Do you believe in and and rest in that loving protection that we've we've sung about this morning. Even in the middle of the pain, even in the middle of the the chaos and lack of understanding, George Mueller uh, is well known for his answered prayers. Uh, Neat guy. If you ever have a chance to read his autobiography, highly recommend it. Maybe I'll have to get that for the library. Um, He set out intentionally um, to start an orphanage, and, and don't get me wrong, but but he would say his, his drive to start an orphanage was not love for orphans. Not that he didn't love them, 
But his drive was just to prove that God would provide. And so he set out to open these orphanages, never asking for money, never making any public appeals, and just praying so the Lord would provide, and the Lord gloriously provided. He prayed in millions of dollars in today's currency. He ended up opening five orphan houses. He cared for 10,024 orphans over the course of his life. And there are just stories upon stories of him sitting down with a table full of orphans and no bread or no milk and praying, Lord, um, you have to provide and the milk truck and bread truck break down and bring it to his door. God just consistently, miraculously provided. And he had this confidence, this confidence in the Lord's provision and protection. And that confidence stretched beyond just physical provisions. His dearly beloved wife fell critically ill. And and he prayed that, that the Lord would heal her, that he would restore her. But she eventually died. And Mueller himself preached at his wife's funeral. His text, Psalm 119.68. You are good and you do good. At his wife's funeral, proclaiming God is good and all he does is good. Sometime later, he would write this in his journal. The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory No good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. Now, if we, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. And I said to myself with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. I am in myself poor and worthless as a sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, listen to this. If it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. Oh, sheep, do you, do you know your shepherd this way? Do you take him at his word? Do you believe that he is good and, and he does good, that my shepherd is with me and he will protect me no matter what comes? And that means if I, if I lose every earthly thing, I'll fear no evil. I'm confident. No true harm, no ultimately bad thing will ever come to me. Not only, uh, only that which is good for my soul. Will I struggle? Will there be hardships and trial? Yes. Will they separate me from the loving sovereignty of my shepherd? No, not once. My shepherd is with me. My shepherd protects me. Thirdly, David is comforted, not only that the rod of the shepherd is there, but the staff. He's saying, my shepherd corrects me. He knows that his shepherd carries this staff, this um, fairly multi-purpose tool, but its main function was directing the sheep. 
The rod, the club, was, was to bludgeon the enemy. The staff was used for loving correction and direction. The shepherd not only has to protect his sheep from outside threats, he has to protect his sheep from themselves. This comes back to that, that painful reality um, that one of the reasons God so frequently uses sheep as a, as a metaphor for us is that sheep are really dumb. I'll let you draw the rest of the analogy. Um, they, they just, they don't know what's best for them. They don't do what's best for them. Now, I'm, I'm not an expert in sheep, not by a long shot, but I found a blog by a, a shepherd in Australia, and he told some of his stories. Um, one sheep uh, pushed his way through the fence and so desperately wanted to get back to his flock, stood by the gate trying to get back in. But every day as the shepherd went to open the gate to let him in, uh, the sheep would bolt. And even with the help of his dogs, he couldn't get the sheep to just walk through the gate when he opened it. Another one was left alone in the field or in the paddock, as he would say, and uh, began frantically looking for other sheep and began running in circles round and round and round and got so frantic it forgot to stop to eat or drink and it ran in circles until it died. A third saw a little piece of green food deep inside a brush pile began to push and strain, trying to get this one foot, never mind all of the grass behind him, but that's the piece that he wanted. And he pushed and pushed and pushed until he found himself to be stuck. And rather than backing out, he continued to push in, and there he died. Not bright critters. They need a shepherd. They need a shepherd that will protect them from themselves. That's why we need a good shepherd. Often that long stick with the hook on the end used to pull a sheep back away from the cliff, back onto the path, away from the danger. Other times used as a loving parent would to give that swat of correction. Stings a little, yeah, but for our good, for our benefit. David understood this about himself, that his own heart was deceitful. Right? That he was prone to sin, prone to wander. He didn't trust himself. He's not standing there saying, I know the right way. He's saying, God, I am so easily distracted. I need a shepherd. I am comforted that my shepherd carries a staff. The Lord is a good shepherd. He doesn't lose his sheep. He keeps them. John 6, 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All of the sheep that God has entrusted to Christ will ultimately be saved. Every single one. He's not going to lose any along the way. Because he's a good shepherd. And he keeps them. One of the ways he keeps them is through his, his loving, corrective discipline. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 speak of this discipline. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, addresses you as sons? Do you remember what it means that you're a, a son of God? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And so if you're a son of God, if you're a child of God, you're going to experience discipline. That's how it works. That's part of this relationship. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. We know that, right? This, 
This isn't fun. For the moment, it seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That's what we're after. That's the hope we have in front of us. Part of the Lord's leading us in the paths of righteousness. Now we need to make a careful distinction here. This is not punishment, right? Discipline and punishment are radically different. You can work this in as you're thinking about how to parent well. We don't punish our children. We ought to discipline them. And it's different. For those who have trusted in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and put your hope in Him, then on the cross, He took every ounce of your guilt. Every drop of punishment is poured out on Him. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Absolutely none. We stand before Him as made completely righteous. No punishment left. No wrath of God directed toward us. Not not one iota. The punishment for sin is absolutely, completely dealt with on the cross of Christ. Discipline is not punishment. It's in no way paying the price for our sin. Discipline is training. It's teaching and correcting. It's the process of of directing and growing. Sometimes it's specific growth that we need. Sometimes there is a, a particular sin that needs correction that 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 the Lord may use a trial in your life to to bring that about but that's not always the case either and I think there's a dangerous trap there that that people get caught in trying to figure out hey Lord what is it what's the specific sin what what thing if I could just figure it out and repent of that one thing then this trial would just end and that would be all of it what is it Lord What do I need to learn? What do I need to to change? Just tell me what it is. No, trust him. He's not playing games with you. He's not hiding this thing from you, waiting for you to find it. As he leads you through the valleys, he will refine you. He will form you and shape you, maybe in some ways that you notice, probably in lots of ways that you just don't see right on the surface. Trust him. He will do it. He will work it out. And it's that kind of confidence in the loving discipline of the Lord that enables James to say, James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Trials of various kinds, all kinds of different hardships and pain and suffering. Count it joy. Why? Because you know that the the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I can count it joy when I enter into the valley of the shadow of death because I know my shepherd is with me, my shepherd will protect me, and my shepherd will correct me. This is going to be hard, but it will be good. God will be in this and working through this. Moving then into verse Five, my shepherd satisfies me. Look at verse five, if you will. David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. David was often on the run from his enemies, 
or in the heat of battle against his enemies. And you can imagine the kind of meal you might get or not get in the middle of a battle. You're you're not going to stop and sit down. You're lucky to grab something and and shove it in your mouth on the go. Um, you, You don't stop. You don't eat your fill. But here the Lord sets a table in the presence of his enemies. How's that possible? Well, because his enemies have been defeated. They've been disarmed. And the picture here is of lavish generosity. It's a feast laid out, a set table. A a cup filled with wine to overflowing. I did my, my seminary training in Louisville and spent a lot of time on airplanes going back and forth and one of the things I learned along the way is once you're seated in the plane if they start asking for volunteers you just get your hand up before they finish the question because it's often good and sure enough I think it was a flight from from Houston back to Calgary because there's no direct flight to Louisville Um, I stopped in every airport in the United States I'm sure Um, started asking for a volunteer and I said yeah sure whatever it is um, you can always back out later if you're wrong about that. But I got chosen, and, uh, and, and what they needed was some weight moved from the back of the plane to the front of the plane, so I got bumped into first class. Oh, my. I don't even want to tell you. If you haven't been, it's not good for you to know. Um, it is, the seats are huge. They're soft and comfortable. Like, I thought there was something about being in the sky that it had to be uncomfortable. No, that's just for the slumps in the back. In the front, the seats are wide, they're padded, there's leg room. Um, the flight attendant came by before, like before we even started moving with these little warm towelettes that I can pat my face and, I don't know, feel rich or something. Um, it's fantastic. As soon as we get up in the air, like the, the other flight attendants, they haven't even got out of their chairs yet. Up front, they're coming by with like menus and, and food and drink, and I politely declined. I'm broke. I'm not spending any money on this stuff. And, and after I had declined a few times, he kind of clued in and said, you know, this is complimentary, right? <laughs> oh, let me change my tone. Yeah, bring, one of each. Um, more of that cheese and meat, please. Like, that's like 30 bucks in the back here. They just keep bringing it. It's fantastic. That's the picture that David is drawing here. Bathed in luxury. With my shepherd, with him I have Everything I need, I am so cared for. I am so abundantly supplied. My cup is running over. My shepherd satisfies me. He fills me with every good thing. In him, I have what I need. Now, if you have a a worldly mindset, you you might be tempted to read this as as just physical provision, right? So trust the Lord, and I'll get that that BMW. That's what we hear on TV. That's not what David is saying. That's just... David couldn't care less about a fancy new camel. Um, He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about his shepherd, metaphorically, who satisfies his soul. So much deeper than food in my belly. Psalm 107.9. The Lord satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. That's what this is about David's saying, Lord, if if I have you, I have enough. You're like a banquet set before me, a cup filled to overflowing. If I have you, I don't need anything else. You have satisfied the deepest longings of my soul. 
There's so many things in this world that distract us, that suck us in, things that we set our hearts on and we're sure I'll just never be happy unless I get that. But none of them ultimately satisfy. They're all deceitful. They're all empty in the end. In the words of Solomon, who, who spent himself chasing after every worldly luxury and every, every physical pleasure, he said it's vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. Psalm 1611, David says to the Lord, You, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's what David is talking about. Seek after him. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I can be satisfied with him. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. The Lord intends to fill his sheep, to fill them to overflowing, that they would have joy, that they would have life, that they would have happiness, not rooted in these frail, deceitful, fleeting things of the world, but in him. That's what he offers, the richest of blessing. My shepherd is with me. My shepherd protects me. My shepherd corrects me. And then my shepherd satisfies my soul. And finally, David says, my shepherd keeps me. There's more to the imagery of the table than just satisfaction. Uh, the table, the, the meal together in Eastern culture was a, a, a highly significant thing. It was a statement of, of solidarity, of, of mutual loyalty. And it was often a, a meal together that stood as the, the climax, the, the pinnacle of, uh, of a covenant between two people. And, and so if we go back to, to Exodus 24, we see this. God has brought his people out of Egypt He's brought them, gathered them around Mount Sinai, and there uh, he gives them the Ten Commandments and his laws and the, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. And, and he's promised that, that they would be his people and he would be their God. He's building this loving, relational covenant with them. And it's, it's just slipped in there. Exodus 24, 9 to 11. Look at this. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. They went up Mount Sinai where the Lord was, the cloud descended, all that. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heavens for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. So you have to realize they're saying, we have seen the holy God. They expect to be annihilated. They expect to be obliterated. But, but no, the Lord is gracious to them. They beheld God and then they ate and drank. They had a meal with the Lord. That was that, that this meal in his, in his presence. It was, a, it was a sealing of the covenant. It was that, that fellowship meal of saying, we're together. We have a bond now. That's the language that David uh, begins to use in verse 6. So verse 5, he talks about this table and the, the lavish generosity of his shepherd. And then verse 6, he, he begins to move into this language of covenant. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice he starts with the here and now, the, the days of my life, and then he begins to look forward to eternity. Goodness and mercy now and in eternity after my life, dwelling in the house of the Lord. 
the goodness there, goodness and mercy is a fairly generic word. The Lord's kindness, the Lord's favor. The word mercy, though, is a very loaded term. It's the, the Hebrew word chesed. It's God's loving kindness, his covenant faithfulness. David is confident that the Lord will continue in, in faithfulness, in kindness toward him. This is not a temporary thing. No matter what, even though the, the valley of the shadow of death closes in around me, I know the Lord will keep me. His, his covenant love, his unfailing grace and mercy will be with me. I will not be outside of his love, not now and not into eternity. When my days are done, I breathe my last. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'll be with him. This short life on this broken world is filled with trials and temptations, with seasons of hardship and darkness and despair. And yet the Lord is your shepherd. And if he's if he is your shepherd, if you're trusting in him, if you're following after him, you can be confident. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will be accompanied by the goodness, the mercy, the grace of God. No matter what we face, our shepherd will keep us. When this life is over, our final rest, our eternal dwelling, will be in the very house of God, in his presence. Nothing better. With him fully and immediately with us, the God who satisfies. That's, that's the covenant promise that, that David is, is holding on to. Do you know the Lord in this way? Do you know him? Not that he is a shepherd. Do you know him as your shepherd? Are you walking with him? Are you trusting in him? Do you know him even through the valley of the shadow of death as the one who protects you, the one who corrects you, the one who satisfies your soul, the one who keeps you in his love now and forever? David metaphorically spoke of the, the Lord as his shepherd, defeating his enemies, setting a table before him, serving him this cup that overflows this symbol of the, the covenant relationship that he had with the Lord. And when Jesus, the new and better David, the ultimate good shepherd came, God himself in the flesh, he literally set a table. He invited his followers, come, eat with me. Join me for a, a covenant meal. This will be the, the seal, the sign of this new covenant made in my blood. This new covenant would be the, the climax, the fulfillment of all of God's covenants up to this point, all leading here. As Jesus Christ would make himself the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Taking on himself every ounce of the wrath of God that, that we deserved and in death he defeated death so that all who would come to this table, all who would trust in him, follow him, know him as their good shepherd uh, by his grace alone could have this absolute confidence, this hope of the, the goodness and mercy of the Lord following them all the days of their lives, his grace and forgiveness purchased by Jesus on the cross and, and like David have this 
confidence of the, the greatest possible blessing, that they too will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the meal that, that Jesus put before his disciples at the Last Supper. And the meal that he instructed us as all of those who would come after to continue to participate in. To continue to, to come together to celebrate this table in the presence of the Lord. As we partake in communion, um, we, we partake in and we, we celebrate that new covenant. It looks back to the, the covenants of the Lord from, from ages past, culminating in the work of Jesus, saying, He's the one. This is it. He's the one who, who defeated my greatest enemy. He's the one who satisfies my soul. He's the one who, who keeps me in the love of God. But it also looks forward. Matthew 26, 29. During that last supper, after Jesus had passed the cup around, he said to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. We remember the, the table past, but we also look forward to a table future. Revelation 19 tells of that table. It tells of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. Um, Satan, the Antichrist, overthrown and defeated, locked away in the pit. And the saints from the ages past are resurrected, given new glorified bodies. Jesus will descend to earth, gather his church to himself, and then there will be a feast to end all feasts. The fulfillment of the covenant to end all covenants, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. You want to know why we have a, a reception after a wedding? It's the same picture. A covenant has been made and we're going to feast together. This is it. This is the, the culmination of all of that. In the words of Revelation 19.9, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And at that supper... That feast with the Lord, a feast that will last ages upon ages into the future. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sadness and, and pain will be undone. And we will be filled to overflowing with every good thing. Most significantly, as Revelation 21.3 then says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what we look forward to, church. That's, that's what our hearts long for. It's the only thing that will ever satisfy and it will fully satisfy. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning as a, as a token, as a, a seal, a sign of, the, of our participation in this covenant. Looking back to covenants past, looking forward to that great feast and the new covenant made in the blood of Jesus. So if you're not a believer this morning, if you can't say the Lord is my shepherd and, and by that mean that, that Jesus Christ, God himself come down in human flesh, died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin, that I've repented of my sin and trusted in him. We would ask you just to let this pass, this cup, this bread, it's not for you. Um, we would ask you to just observe and, and consider. Why not? 
This is what's offered. This is what the, the creator God of the universe has, has put before me, wretched and sinful though I am. He's offered to wipe my sin clean, to bring me into his fold. And if you are a believer this morning, I hope you would come this morning with confidence that we would partake of this meal in, in joy and celebration. No matter what the circumstance, no matter the trials and struggle you face, even from the depths of the, the valley of the shadow of death, that we can say, my God is with me. He protects me. He satisfies me. He is with me. That You know that because of the death of Jesus on your behalf, the Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. That we have this sure confidence before him. And only the goodness and mercy will flow all the days of your life. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I invite the worship team to come uh, as we prepare for communion. As we begin to sing, the ushers will bring the elements out. Um, there are two cups. Um, one on the bottom has the bread, the juice in the top. Um, so take note of that. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you for a good shepherd, Lord. You know our weakness you know our brokenness and our sin, our need for rescue. God, you would have had every right to simply destroy us. But by your mercy and for your glory, you have sent your son to die in our place. That we may have forgiveness. That we may know your, your goodness and your loving kindness. That we may have confidence in him to know that that surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and to know that into eternity we shall be with you. So God, we, we sing this morning, we celebrate uh, again this new covenant in Christ, rejoicing in all you have done and looking forward to that great day when this covenant will be brought to its completion and we will finally be um, by your side with you. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.